wonderful prayer for the uh, country of Japan and will help us as we pray for John and Sylvia. So uh, welcome to Grace. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, is where we're going to get started. In fact, we'll uh, be kind of all throughout the Gospels, but we'll start there. Uh, If you don't have your own Bible, there should be some Bibles scattered in the pews in front of you. And if you don't have access to either of those, most of the text that we'll be covering this morning (coughs) should be on the screen. We've been in the midst of a short series on uh, the disciples called the Twelve. Uh, We did a a brief introductory sermon on who these men were. And then last week, we looked at their leader. Uh, We looked at Simon Peter. Uh, This morning, we're going to take a look at uh, another prominent duo in the life of the Twelve, James and John. I trust that you're with me there or close to it in Luke chapter 9. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. So let's pray together again. Father, we ask that you would please be among us, that your spirit would be stirring our hearts to worship, stirring our hearts to listen, stirring our hearts to to obedience. Father, we're so very grateful that you have given us the lives of these 12 men as a picture of what it means to follow Christ and as a picture of what it means to be transformed by following Christ. As we look at these men, it's an amazing thing that you do in their life, Jesus, that you take these 12 ordinary men and you do extraordinary things because you are an extraordinary God. You take men and women with faults and with strengths, with personalities and backgrounds and experiences, and you take us as we are and you shape us. You round off the rough edges of our lives and our character so that we might be the perfect utensils that you want us to be. Thank you that you have done that in the life of these two men, James and John, those uh, two men who were most close to you, Jesus, you invested in very heavily and you changed them and you did a remarkable work through your indwelling spirit and through your life and teaching and shaping them. And we pray that you would do the same for those of us who are believers, who have been born again, who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are shaping us and making us into instruments that we might be fishers of men as these men were called to be as well. And so would you be with us? Would you help us? We pray in the name of Jesus and all of God's people together said, Amen. I want to begin with another baseball analogy. I don't know why uh, baseball analogies just happen to fit these guys, but uh, here we go. The year was 1987, so I don't know if you're a baseball fan or not, but in that year, uh, there was a rookie and an emerging star who combined for the Oakland Athletics to lead baseball that year in home runs uh, for a pair of teammates. Of course, the now uh, disgraced duo of Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco uh, combined to hit some 80 home runs that season. You can see a picture uh, of them there. Uh, Mark McGuire was a rookie that year, and he actually won AL Rookie of the Year and went on to have a really good career, although somewhat tarnished. Uh, And then, of course, Jose Canseco that year hit 31 home runs, and uh, they were uh, tagged with the name... The Bash Brothers, I don't know if you see that there, but from that point on, they were called the Bash Brothers because they together bash home runs, right? That's what they were known for. We can uh, move along in our slide. Today, we're going to talk about another pair of brothers. Uh, These brothers were actually physical brothers, and they were named not for their propensity for bashing baseballs, but for their desire to bash people. Uh, They didn't want to hit home runs. They wanted to hit people out of the park. And Jesus gives them a nickname kind of similar to the Bass Brothers. 
The name that Jesus gives this pair of brothers is the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. You can almost hear the rebuke in the the nickname. So this morning, we're going to take a look at these two men who are very prominent in the Gospels, James and John, the sons of thunder. So if you're taking notes, let's start off with James. Let's start off with James. I call him the fettered fanatic. The fettered fanatic, because that's what he was. He was a fanatic, and Jesus needed to fetter that fanaticism to use him for his glory. I ran across a story told uh, from a pastor of many ages ago. The pastor's name is William Sankster, and he tells of of a man who was very zealous in his congregation, a man that most pastors, including me, would we would like to have this kind of guy in our church. He was zealous for the Lord. He loved to worship the Lord. He loved to read his Bible. He had just become a believer, and, and man, he wanted to tell everyone. He wanted to, to tell everyone the good news about Jesus, but sometimes he did it in a way that really wasn't well accepted. Sometimes he did it in a way that wasn't received. It didn't demonstrate love. And so the pastor tells the story of this man. This man happened to be a barber. And so back in the olden days, you would come in and they would lather you up after you get your hair cut. And this man, this barber, this zealous Christian was lathering up this uh, man who he had given the haircut and he was, had turned his back to him to get his razor ready. And he uh, turned around and exclaimed to him with the razor in hand, are you prepared to meet your God? To which the man who was lathered up uh, was so scared that he fled immediately with the lather still on his face. Um, you know, fanaticism is a good thing, right? To be zealous for the Lord is a good thing, but sometimes it can be uh, overdone. Sometimes we can be overzealous, and it can be a bad thing too. Uh, this was, I think, who James was. I think this is a good picture of the disciple James. He was zealous. He was a fanatic. He had zeal for the Lord, but sometimes... In fact, most of the times we see in the Gospels, we see that zeal being misused. So let's take a look at what I would call the raw materials. What were some of the raw materials that Jesus had to work with when it comes to James? What what was his background? What was his makeup? Well, just some facts so that we can kind of get to know who this man was. First of all, He was the older of the two brothers, and so it's James and John, right? He's the older. He always comes first. We know that he, along with his brother John, ran a fishing business, and it was their father's fishing business in uh, Capernaum, which is, as we saw last week, on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. So they ran this business together. We know they had partners, right, Uh, which we saw last week as well, Peter and Andrew. And something that's interesting that shows up in the Gospels is that uh, they were apparently from a very prominent family, because the Gospels uh, oftentimes calls these two boys the sons of Zebedee. The sons of Zebedee. And it's interesting because it points out that that Zebedee was well-known. Their fishing business must have been very good. According to Mark chapter 1, they had hired servants. So it wasn't just a family thing. They were they were well off enough that they could actually hire servants. That was kind of unusual. Uh, a most interesting account is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. We find out in John, chapter 18, that the sons of Zebedee, and Zebedee, uh, that his family was known by the high priest in Israel at that time. He was like the man, right? Uh, and that was all the way down south in Jerusalem. But we know because when John was following Jesus. They had taken Jesus away. They had arrested him, and they take him, they take him to the high priest's home 
John was able to enter because he was known by the high priest. So this family was fairly well-to-do, was known, and what we find out is that he, along with his brother, was called to follow Jesus to be fishers of men with Peter and Andrew. That's the account that we saw last week. So those are just kind of some of the details of his life. An interesting one that we're going to see later is that apparently James and John's mother followed along with them as a disciple of Christ. Uh, What we see in Matthew, I think, chapter 27, is that she was a part of a group of women who traveled with Jesus and supported him financially. And in one of the incidents we're going to look at, we find that uh, she has a... how shall shall we put, uh, a not-so-flattering role to play in one of these stories. But so their mother traveled with them. That's that's the raw materials that the scriptures give us about James. So what was his place then? What was his place then among the twelve? Well, we can look at the chart behind us. Uh, What we see then is that he is listed second on the list, behind Peter in two of the four lists, I believe in Mark and in Acts. So what that tells us is that he most likely had a leadership role as well. We have Peter, who is the primary leader, but then James shows up at least twice. We can move on from that chart. Also, what we know about James and John is that they were a part of the inner three, right? The big three. It was Peter, James and John, right? These were the the big three, the most intimate of disciples with Jesus. And the order is always like that. It's Peter and then who? James. It's Peter and James. And so I think this gives us a hint that James was a leader in his own right. Uh, Maybe Peter was the primary leader, but James had the raw material also of being a good leader. And maybe he had a leadership role. So What we find out when we go into the Gospels is that there's really not too much to go on. There are only really uh, three incidents that we learn about the character, the personality of both James and John. Uh, The Gospels are essentially devoid of explicit details of his life or his character, uh, aside from these three incidents. So, uh, I know I had you turn to Luke, but let's let's look at Mark chapter 3. I'm just going to read this to you. You don't have to flip there. In Mark chapter 3, we get the first glimpse of the character, both of James and of John. And it's found in the nickname that Jesus gives them. Uh, Mark 3.17 says this. It's a list of the disciples, right? Mark is listing the disciples, and he lists James and John in verse 17. He says this, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And then there's a parenthesis. So Mark is going to give us some additional information about these two boys, and this is what he says. He says, to them... To them he gave the name Boanjernes, which is hard for us to say. I like what it means, which means, quote, the sons of thunder. So Mark alone gives us this nickname, right? We don't get this nickname anywhere else, but most likely it was a a rebuke. Remember last week how Peter got the nickname The Rock? And it wasn't a rebuke. It was Jesus saying, I want you to be The Rock. I want you to be rock solid. It was an encouraging nickname, right? Well, I think this nickname, The Sons of Thunder, was not an encouraging nickname. Jesus wasn't encouraging them to be Sons of Thunder. I think he was discouraging them to be Sons of Thunder so that when they acted in a way that was was not good, he could just use this nickname. Hey, sons of thunder, you're acting like sons of thunder. It was a a rebuke. And the next two incidents that we're going to see, I think, show you why they were called the sons of thunder and why it was rebuke. But this title, the sons of thunder, 
I think it reveals a little bit about James's character. And John's too. We're going to get to John in a little bit. It reveals to us a little bit about James's character. I think it shows us that he was a man of passion. I mean, he was just passionate. He was zealous, right? And it sometimes crossed the line into unhealthy fanaticism. Again, John MacArthur in his book says this about the zeal of James. I think he's right on. He says this, This kind of passion can be good in leadership, but needs to be tamed and transformed by Jesus. He was zealous, speaking of James, thunderous, passionate, fervent, ambitious, vehement, outspoken, intense, and impatient with evildoers. He says, zeal is a virtue when it is truly zeal for righteousness' sake. Sometimes zeal is less than righteous. Zeal apart from knowledge could be damning. Zeal without wisdom is dangerous. Zeal mixed with insensitivity is often cruel. Whatever ze- whenever zeal disintegrates into uncontrolled passion, it can be deadly. And that is, I think, exactly what we're going to see happen in this next incident. So hopefully you're in Luke, Luke chapter 9. Let's read about this second incident. He, he gives them a nickname, right, to rebuke them, sons of thunder. In this scene, I call it fire from heaven, Luke chapter 9. We're going to read verses 51 through 56. And I think we'll see about uh, their nickname, why they're called sons of thunder, and why MacArthur explains them in such a way. Let's read this together, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Now when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Your Bible may have an additional line. Mine doesn't. It's questionable whether it's in the New Testament. Verse 56, Then he and his disciples went on to another village. So what was going on here? Jesus is in the north. He wants to head south to where Jerusalem is. And the quickest way to do that is to head through the area known as Samaria. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Samaritans are kind of half Jewish half uh, other ethnicity, and they essentially clashed with the Jews, right? So they weren't friendly with one another. Jesus sends his disciples forward to to kind of find a a way, uh, a place to stay going through Samaria. And they say, no, you're not welcome here. You're going down to Jerusalem. You're a Jew. You're not welcome here, right? So then how does James and John respond? Do you see the zeal Do you see the passion? Do you see the the insensitivity in their statement? They say, listen, uh, these guys won't let us stay here. They're hindering you, right, Jesus? They're hindering your work. They're hindering your gospel. So if if we may, if you will allow us to, because we know, you know, only you can do this, but if you give us permission, we're just going to call down from heaven and we're going to say, God, nuke them, right? That's what they wanted to do. Call fire down to just zap them and to burn them into Bacon bits, that's what they want to do, right? They're zealous, they're angry, they're, they're upset because their Lord was offended, which is a good thing, and yet they are fanatic, right? They kind of cross that line. So Jesus rebukes them, 
And they just keep on going. They keep on going into the next town. This incident shows their lack of mercy. They're not merciful towards these people. They're, they're vindictive, right? They have been hurt, and they want to hurt back. They wrongfully want to play the part of Elijah. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's a story of the prophet Elijah who called down fire from heaven to destroy soldiers of the idolatrous, idolatrous king Ahaziah. So certainly, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe that was their, their boyhood hero, right? Maybe they wanted to be like him, and they wanted to call down fire, and Jesus rebukes them. He says, listen, you don't know what you're doing. Interestingly enough, when you fast forward a little bit and you read through the Gospel of Acts, we find one of the other disciples by the name of Philip. And he goes to that very same region in Samaria, and he preaches the Gospel, most likely to the very same Samaritans that James and John wanted to burn up. And do you know what happens? The town comes to Christ. People place their faith in Jesus. And so we're very grateful here that Jesus didn't allow them to do what they wanted to do. They were the sons of thunder, right? We see one other incident that I think reveals James and John's character. I call it your right and your left. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 24. It's a familiar story, most likely. Uh, Here, we have not only passion, but we have a hunger for position and power. A hunger for position and power. Matthew chapter 20. Verse 20, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. So what's going on here? Right? Just take a moment. What's going on? Who's going to Jesus to ask a favor? It's the mom, right? Okay, so it's the mom. It's Mrs. Zebedee, right, who's coming. And the image is that James and John are kind of on her coattails, right? It's like, Mom, I think... we, got, we want something from Jesus, but we think we'll get a better answer if you go. And so she goes, right, and they go right behind him. So what, what is it you want, Jesus asks. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So they basically say, Mom, we want the best places in the kingdom when Jesus establishes it. When he kicks out the Romans, right, that's what they anticipated. We want the best places in the government, and they had enough gall to ask their mom to go and do that. As far as I'm concerned, uh, they should have their man card removed, okay? Uh, You just shouldn't do that. You don't ask your mom to do that, your dirty work, okay? But that's what they did. How does Jesus respond to such a power play, to such hunger for position and power? How does Jesus respond? Verse 22, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answer. They have no idea what they're talking about. We can, of course we can. We'll drink it. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, speaking about a cup of suffering. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now, when the ten, that is the other ten, heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And it caused a fight, right, amongst the twelve, because two of them were so presumptuous to send their mommy to ask for the best places in the kingdom. So what does this reveal about the character of James and John? They were power-hungry. They sought 
position, right? So what, what do we get? What kind of picture do we get of this man, James? Well, he was one of the sons of thunder, passionate, zealous, right? He um, called from fire down to heaven, so he lacked mercy. He was insensitive to people. He was vindictive even, and he had an insatiable thirst for hunger and uh, for, for, uh, for power, for position, right? That's, that was what James was. Any of you relate to that? As we walk through these 12 men, I think oftentimes we are going to see ourselves in one or more of them. So maybe you can relate to James. Maybe you're like this. Maybe, maybe you have a strong personal ambition, and that's a good thing. Maybe you're a natural leader at work or at home or in the church, and it's a good thing. Maybe you're zealous and you're passionate for life and for the things of the Lord, and that's, that's a wonderful thing, and yet your zeal can overflow into anger sometimes. It can overflow into harshness to others. Your ambition can lead to a lack of sympathy for other people, and you won't, you won't let anyone stop you. You're goal-oriented and not people-oriented, and you won't let anybody stop you pursuing your goal, even if it means turning them into bacon bits, right? Does that sound like you? If so, then be encouraged. God uses people like you. So how, how does the story end? What does Jesus do with this kind of character, this character of James? Well, Acts chapter 12, you don't have to turn there. But in Acts chapter 12, we find out that James is actually the first of the 12 uh, to die. James is the first of the 12 to be martyred at the hands of King Herod. Uh, we find out that the Herod wanted to persecute the church, He wanted to do harm to the church, most likely to gain political favor. And so who does he choose? Just think about it. If you were a king and you wanted to hurt the group, the the church, and you knew that these 12 guys, right, they were their leaders, and you wanted to pick the guy who was making the most noise, who was the most trouble, who was the most verbal, who was the most uh, stubborn, who was the most obstinate, who would you choose? See, I would think, well, Peter, he's the leader, right? Peter is the leader, and he leads in, in, in the book of Acts. He leads. But Herod, Herod picks this guy. He picks James, and my guess is because James was still James, right? He was outspoken. He was boisterous. He spoke freely, and he didn't care what people thought. And so when it was time to pick someone, you, James, you were the guy. But I do think his character had been transformed. One commentator says it this way, and I think he's very accurate. Speaking of James, still courageous, still zealous, and committed to the truth, he had apparently learned to use those qualities for the Lord's service rather than for his own self-aggrandizement. When Herod decided that it was time to stop the church, James was the first who had to die. Somewhere along the line, he had to learn to control his anger, to bridle his tongue, to redirect his zeal, to eliminate his thirst for revenge, and to lose his self-ambition. And the Lord used him to do a wonderful work in the church. I think that James had learned his lesson. I think Jesus had taken all of those raw materials that were good and had smoothed off the rough edges and made him into a strong leader in the early church. 
uh, a, bit of, a bit of church legend helps us here. We know that he was killed by Herod, but uh, the church historian Eusebius writes this. It's a very interesting story about how maybe James went to his death. So I'd like to read what he says. Quote, The one who led James to the judgment seat, that is the soldier. The one who led James to the judgment seat, when he saw him bearing his testimony, was moved and confessed that he too was also a Christian. He writes, They were both led astray, uh, led away together. And on the way, he begged James to forgive him of the part that he played. And James, after considering this a little while, said, Peace be with you. And he kissed him. And thus, legend, church history says, they were both beheaded at the same time. You think James learned his lesson if that was true? I think he did. So what about his little brother? We've seen James, the fettered fanatic. What about his little brother, John? Well, let's move then to learn about this disciple whom I call, and the scripture calls, the beloved. He is the disciple that Jesus loved. What about his raw materials? What do we know about James? Well, of course, he is the younger brother of, excuse me, John. He's the younger brother of James, right? He's identified often this way, being called the brother of James. So if you have ever been a younger sibling and people say, oh, that's Trey's little sister. That's what happened to my sister. You know what that's like. You don't have your own name. You're so-and-so's brother. You're so-and-so's sister. That happens in the scriptures a lot, and that's, what, that's who John was. He was the brother of James, right? And apparently what we see from scripture is that he, that is John, was much like James. So all of the information about his mom and about the business, that's all the same, right? They're brothers. So everything that was true information-wise about James is true about John. And I think everything that we saw about their personality was also true. Because remember, John was also a son of thunder, right? He's also a son of thunder, and John also wanted to call fire down from heaven. That was John also. And John was also there hiding behind his mummy, right, looking for power and position. He was also there. So he also was zealous, uh, fanatical. He was uh, harsh, right? He, he had a hunger for power. That was John too. I think these brothers were very similar, and yet there was one big distinction. I think there was one big distinction And that is, in my humble opinion, that Jesus, when he looked into John, when he looked into the eyes of John, he saw that John had a capacity to balance his zeal with love. To balance his zeal with love. So what is John known as? If you read through the Bible, if you read through the Gospels, John is known as the apostle of love to those who read the Bible and teach the Bible. He's known as the apostle of love. So let me ask you a quick question. Does a guy who wants to kill people with fire and uh, ask favors behind his mummy, right, does that sound like an apostle of love to you? No, good answer. It doesn't sound like an apostle of love to me. So what happened? How did Jesus make him into the apostle of love? Well, it's interesting. What we find out uh, is that John wrote a gospel, right? And it's called the Gospel of John. Easy enough, right? It's called the Gospel of John. And when you read through the Gospel of John, John himself shows up in the Gospel, but he never names himself. It never says John. Do you know what it says? A couple things. It says either the other disciple, 
So he identifies him as the other disciple. If there is this disciple and the other one, that's him. But most often he identifies himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. The disciple that Jesus loved. Let me ask you a question. Do you think he's bragging? Do you think he's gloating? Do you think he's writing inspired scripture? I'm the one who Jesus loved. It was me and not those other 11 losers, right? Do you think that's what he meant? I don't think so. I think what he was saying is that I can't believe that he would love me. That's what I think he's saying. I can't believe that even though I'm a son of thunder and this is, how I, this is who I am, Jesus and his love had a deep impression on John. And so he is called the disciple who Jesus loved. Now also, when you read through his letters, so he wrote the Gospel of John, right? But then he also wrote these three little letters at the end of your Bible, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote those little letters. He also wrote Revelation. But in those three letters in particular, the theme of love, the word love just shows up all over the place. You can't read through his letters without knowing that this guy cares about love. He writes about love, so he's called the Apostle of Love. So what's the connection? Let me suggest this to you. I think the connection is evident to me. John had to learn how to love. He wasn't a natural lover. He had to learn how to love. And how did he do it? Who was it that taught him how to love? Well, it was Jesus, of course. It was the one that Jesus, he was the disciple who Jesus loved. He learned from the best. I think Jesus showed him how to love. What's interesting is that when you read through these self-designations in the Gospel of John, when he calls himself the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's always, he's always, John is always doing two things. He's either demonstrating love for Jesus or he is receiving the display of love from Jesus, right? He's showing Jesus love or he's experiencing the love or the example of Jesus' love when he uses these references, So we're just going to take a look at one. Turn with me to our final scripture, John chapter 13. John chapter 13, the the great book letter of love. John chapter 13, verses 23 through 26. The scene is familiar, right? Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, and uh, they're in their upper room. It's the night of his betrayal. John chapter 13, verses 23 through 26. I think we get a wonderful example of Jesus showing John how to love. Verse, let's read verse 23. <clears throat> Jesus had just foretold that one of the disciples was going to betray him, and they were confused. Verse 23, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, so it's, this is John, one of them, the disciple who Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Now, wait a minute, they're eating dinner. They're not at a table, right? The way that they would do it is they would basically uh, kind of gather in a, in a U-shaped kind of semicircle, and they would, lay, uh, they would lay down. They would lay down and basically uh, uh, recline on one hand, and they would, they would have the other hand to eat, okay? So they were in a semicircle, right? So this is what's going on. Let's keep reading. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. So Peter wants to know, who's going to betray him, right? And he asks John to ask Jesus. 
Leaning back, that's a clue as to where John was in the semicircle, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So why is this such a demonstration of love? Well, basically what we have is that John and Judas were the two individuals reclining next to Jesus. There was Jesus at the center, and then there was John, and then there was Judas, right? So John and Judas are right next to Jesus during this meal. Why is that important? Well, it's important because we know that John leaned into Jesus, which means that Judas was in the other position, which means that that position, that position while they ate the Passover, was essentially the place of honor. It was the place of honor. And so what does that mean? Imagine that. The disciples are coming in. They're having the last meal. Jesus gets to arrange how the disciples are going to be seated, if you will, the order that they're going to eat. And there is always a place of honor next to the host. And who does he reserve it for? The one who he loves? John? Nope. Peter, the leader? Nope. What about some of the others? Nope. Who does he reserve the place of honor for? Judas. The one that he knows in just a matter of hours is going to betray him. And he reserves the place of honor for this man? That is an incredible act of love. But on top of that, what did Jesus say? He says, I'm going to dip this bread, I'm going to dip this morsel, and then who I give it to, that's going to be the one who's going to betray me. And he does that, and he gives it, he gives it to Judas. Now, tradition says that when the host would do this act, would, would dip this morsel, most likely bread, and give it to someone, it was a sign of honoring, once again, a special guest. So what has Jesus done? He's taken the guy who's about to betray him, and, and he has honored him, right? He's given him every display of love and grace that he can before he betrays him. Now, what would that teach John, who was right there? John was the only one, right, he, he, who understood what that meant. That would demonstrate to John an incredible love. So we also see in the book of John, and we see some references behind us, that when John uses this language, he's showing love. We're just going to read through these really quick. John 18, 16, we see that John follows Jesus all the way into the high priest's courtyard at his trial. He must have loved Jesus. He follows him, right? We see in uh, verse uh, 26 of chapter 19 that Jesus gives his mother into the care of whom? Who would he... If you were about to die and you had these guys to pick from and you knew that one of them uh, needed to take care of your mother and to love her and be tender and to care for her, would you pick a guy like James? Probably not. Would you pick a guy like John? Or at least who you were making John to be? A man of love? Yes. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He leaves the care of his mother into John's hand. And church history tells us that he never for a moment left the city of Jerusalem until that woman died. He was a man of love. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, we see uh, when the resurrection happens that the two disciples, John and Peter, are running to the tomb, right? Remember, they get the news and they start sprinting. And who gets there first? John does. John gets there first. 
He loves Jesus. Verse 20, chapter 21, verse 7. On the lake there, after they go fishing, they've been fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. And there's a man who appears on the horizon and there's a fire going and he calls out to them and they don't know it's Jesus. Who's the first one to recognize Jesus? Remember? It's John. John is the first one to recognize the risen Christ. It's so interesting that Jesus had made this harsh man into the apostle of love. So how did, how did John learn to love? He spent time with Jesus. And Jesus taught him how to love. He demonstrated love. He lived it daily. So how, how do we? How do we learn how to love? I think we can do the same. We simply spend time with Jesus. So how is Jesus going to make you into a, a person who has a greater capacity for love? You need to spend time with him in prayer, in the scriptures. You need to spend time with his people. You need to spend time with uh, him in, in, uh, in solitude. You need to pursue a relationship with him. And he too can teach you how to be a man and a woman who loves. I want to share a practical, I think, an illustration of how God does this. I uh, had lunch with a young man who grew up in our church. He came to faith here under the youth ministry of our former pastor. And uh, he served here for many number of years, and he stayed here. And he worked as our youth pastor on a volunteer basis for lots of years. Who am I talking about, church? Talking about John. We all know John, big red-headed John, right? Talking about John. I had lunch with John this week just to catch up on the ministry. He is uh, serving with Youth for Christ in Watsika, and he is considering going to Guatemala to be a full-time missionary. God is doing all sorts of wonderful things in his life. And something that I've noticed as I've met with John through the years is that Jesus has changed him. I don't think he would disagree that uh, when, in my, my saying this, when he was younger, he was like James. I mean, he was passionate, he was zealous, he loved the Lord, and when people sinned, he wanted to burn them up, right? <laughs> like, if you disagreed with him, he wanted to burn you up, you know? He, he was zealous, he loved the Lord, but he could be sharp at times, he could be overly critical at times, he could sometimes rub people the wrong way, right? He could come across as unloving, to some people. But I tell you what, man, if, if you have a chance to, to get to know him, to talk to him a little bit, um, he is not like that anymore. In, in a good sense, he's zealous. He's still passionate about the things of Christ, but he's matured. As he's walked with Jesus, Jesus has rubbed off the rough edges of, of John's life, and he's still zealous, but man, he loves, he loves well, and he's learning to love well. That's what Jesus does with people like this, right? That's what Jesus does in our life. So how did it end for John? Well, church history again tells us that uh, he died on the island of Patmos. It was essentially an island jail. There's an image there, I think. Um, it's interesting. We know that he pastored a church in Ephesus until uh, after Mary's death. He went to pastor a church, and he pastored this church in the city of Ephesus for many, 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 many years. In fact, uh, the, the church history, Jerome tells us that when he was sent to this prison, this island prison, that he was so frail that they had to carry him every Sunday to church. He was so frail that they literally, people carried the pastor to church, and they had to carry him away to this island prison. Like an elderly grandfather, church history and Jerome teaches that his often repeated words were this, my little children love one another. Does that sound familiar? He wrote that and he said it. My little children love one another. 
And when people would ask him, why? Why should we love one another? It is said that he would respond this way. It is the Lord's command. It is the Lord's command. And if this alone be done, if that alone be done, it is enough. Let's pray.